Yon Fossa. When did you read Fossa first and uh, what was your experience as a reader? So uh, it was, I guess, over 20 years ago now. And I did not, in fact, know any Norwegian at all. The reason I read him is that an American publisher had heard about him. And what they do, if they're, you know, if it's a book in Spanish, there might be someone in the office who reads Spanish. If it's a book in Norwegian, it's very unlikely that there's someone in the office who reads Norwegian. So they they basically get a book report. Um, you know, if they're Roger Strauss or Farrar Strauss-Giroux, they call up their friend Susan Sontag and say, hey, Susan, should we translate this book, Name of the Rose? Um, or they just get a junior person, like a grad student or a beginning translator or something, and pay them a hundred bucks to basically do a book report. So that's what someone did. And the book, which is Melancholy, had been translated from Norwegian into German. So not only was there no one in the office that knew Norwegian, but they didn't know any grad students or beginning translators they trusted or whatever to, to read it directly in Norwegian but they had me read the German translation and do my report. Fossa's German translator is very good and has been working with him for decades. I read the book and wrote the report that first of all sort of describes the plot and then said what I thought. And what I thought is total genius. You absolutely must do it. This book is amazing. Um, and the publisher said, well, thank you very much for your report. Here's your hundred bucks. And as it turns out, they didn't do it, um, which is, is how it goes. You know, they have other projects that they're considering and maybe they didn't like how I described it, even though I said that it worked well, like maybe it didn't sound like it was going to work well for them or whatever. Um, so that's normal. Um, but in this case, I said, you know, I really believe in this book. Like, can I take the project somewhere else since you're not doing it anyway? Um, I don't know if I needed to ask them. It's not like they owned it, but I just felt like that was the right thing to do. And, um, and they were like, yeah, sure, fine. We don't care. So um, I found the book, an American publisher, using a sample that I translated directly from the German, which obviously didn't end up in the book. Um, I found a co-translator who I knew, a native Norwegian speaker who was interested in breaking into translation. Um, and we co-translated the book. And what that means is that she did a first draft directly Norwegian to English. And so I sat there with the English, the Norwegian, which I knew what it said because I had the English. And when I didn't see how they were going together or like which word meant which or whatever, I had the German to sort of triangulate. And Norwegian is a language that's pretty similar to German in a lot of ways, uh, the grammar, a lot of the vocabulary. So it wasn't like I was using Arabic or something. It was a pretty direct way to like learn what all the Norwegian words meant and stuff. And so, um, that was my role. I would revise the English on that basis and send it back to Greta, my co-translator, for this other round. And we did round after round. Um, you know, I was worried at the beginning, am I just going to be an editor, like, touching up a couple things? But actually, because 
so much of Foss's writing is about the rhythm and kind of getting these sort of internal rules for each book and stuff like that. There ended up being dozens and dozens of changes every page, some getting him closer to the Norwegians, some getting him farther, then talking to her about how the Norwegian's working and doing it again and stuff like that. So I, I do think um, that it's fair to say it was a co-translation, not just like a dude with more prestige piggybacking on you know, the actual translator and then calling her a native informant or something, which is what I really did not want to do. Uh, I, I think it was a, a fair co-translation process. And then after that, um, she decided not to do more FASA and I decided to keep doing more FASA. And I translated since then without a co-translator. That's how I learned the language. And, you know, again, I don't, speak it. I couldn't interpret for the UN. I couldn't have like a dinner table conversation where I'm interpreting back and forth. Um, and I'm sure there are some authors that it would not be appropriate for me to translate if they're sort of subtle social cues in the language choices and things like that, that I wouldn't pick up on. But Fossa's writing is very you know, I sit on a stone and I look at the sky. You know, those are not sentences that you need super fine-tuned antenna in order to understand what they're saying, but you need to come up with a way to write it in English that it doesn't sound very plodding and kind of primitive and simple. So for, for Fossa in particular, the skill that I have is the one that you need more than um, really adept knowledge of the Norwegian. Now, the new book that has come out, the latest one, it's uh, Shining from Jan Fossas. Uh, you translated it. Um, please uh, take us through the book and uh, please talk about, uh, take one example from I meant uh, the first sentence. Please take an example from the book and how you translated it. The book before A Shining uh, is called Septology, and that um, is generally seen as his magnum opus among his novels. Fossa is also a world-famous playwright, but in English, the plays never really took off. And um, in terms of him being a novelist, this was clearly his big book. Uh, it's called Septology because it's in seven parts, but it's all sort of one book. And in fact, it was published as three books, which is very confusing. All the numbers in Fossa are confusing. And so then after that, he wrote this incredibly short book called Shining. Um, so after, after the like, you know, years long buildup with Septology, there was this very slim book, which worked out well because he won the Nobel Prize this year. And for anyone who was wrongly scared off from septology because, oh my God, it's so long, it's actually not a difficult book. But um, anyone who was scared off, there's this really, really short one. So the story is that um, 
a man is kind of at loose ends, doesn't know what to do with his life, so just goes for a drive. Whenever he gets to a choice, he turns right, and then the next one he turns left, and the next one he turns right, so he's not choosing what to do. He's just following this rule and seeing where it takes him, and where it takes him is down this road in, into a forest where his car gets stuck. And so there, there he is. He can't go anywhere. He's all by himself. He hasn't passed any houses recently. It's night is falling, snow is starting, it's Norway, like what's he gonna do? And so um, after thinking about it for a while, there's this sort of footpath that leads into the forest and he decides, well, you know, path must lead somewhere and like I know nothing's gonna happen if I stay here. So I might as well just go into this path. And one of the things I love about the book, I think this is his playwriting side, is that he's really great at capturing the way people shift their thoughts. People don't think analytically or logically. So after all this time that he's wondering what to do and deciding to go into the forest, the minute he walks into the forest, he says to himself, I'm so stupid. Like, what was I thinking? This is the dumbest thing you could ever do. Like, walk alone into a forest and get lost when, you know, you're cold and it's night. Like, what is my problem? So after all this time convincing himself, he immediately sort of realizes, wait, bad idea. What's wrong with me? Anyway, so in the forest, it's a bit more of a, kind of less realistic book from that point on, if you want to put it that way. And he sees these shining shapes start to appear. And um, the thing that's great about the book is that he really commits to the bit, as we say, in America. Like, you know, if you were alone in a forest and you suddenly saw these glowing white human-shaped, you know, presences floating in front of you, you wouldn't believe your eyes. You'd be like, what is this? Am I seeing things? Like, this isn't possible. But then what? You know, you you say that to yourself and there they are. Like, what would you do? And so that's what the book kind of really captures, you know? So it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like a Marvel movie where everyone flying around is just normal and there are no rules and like nothing matters. Um, it and it doesn't feel I don't know it, it's somehow you really get the emotional reality of like what this would be like even though some would say it's impossible anyway so that's um that's the shining of the title and um you know so the first sentence there were a couple different reviews that that picked out the first couple sentences and said, this is a, this shows how great Fossa is at really being on this very human, normal, everyday reality. Um, one reviewer said, it kind of sets up the, um, well, let me read, let me read first page. So this is the beginning of a shining. I was taking a drive. It was nice. Felt good to be moving. 
I didn't know where I was going. I was just driving. Boredom had taken hold of me. Usually I was never bored, but now I had fallen prey to it. I couldn't think of anything I wanted to do, so I just did something. I got in my car and drove. And when I got somewhere I could turn right or left, I turned right. And at the next place I could turn right or left, I turned left, and so on. I kept driving like that. Eventually, I'd driven a long way up a forest road where the ruts gradually got so deep that I felt like the car was getting stuck. I just kept driving until the car got totally stuck. I tried to reverse, but I couldn't, so I stopped the car, turned the engine off. I was sitting in the car. Yes, well, now I'm here, I thought. Now I'm sitting here, and I felt empty, as if the boredom had turned into emptiness or maybe into a kind of anxiety because I felt something like fear as I sat there empty, looking straight ahead, as if into a void, into nothingness. What am I talking about, I thought. There's the forest in front of me. It's just a forest, I thought. All right, then, this sudden urge to drive off somewhere had brought me to a forest. And there was another way of talking, according to which something, something or another, led, whatever that might mean, to something else, yes, something else. I peered into the forest in front of me, forest. Yes, trees right next to one another, pines, pine trees, and between the trees was brown soil that looked like it was mostly dry. I felt empty, and then this anxiety. What was I scared of? So that's the beginning, and we can already sort of see him getting further and further into this uncertain world. Um, and so the first three sentences are very short and simple. I was taking a drive. It was nice. It felt good to be moving. Um, and so as I was starting to say, this, um, uh, this critic said, you know, already we're getting a kind of clue of if he's enjoying this drive, like what's he running away from? Like what has gone wrong with this guy's life? Um, and so I think it's a good example of like what the translator does and doesn't do. You know, I'm often asked like, oh, is it hard to translate a book where, you know, you get the information so much later or whatever? And the answer is no, because that's the writer's decision. Like if the writer doesn't give you a piece of information till page 200, you know, there's no decision for the translator to make. Like you're not going to move the scene to page 50 because you feel like it. You're just following the construction of the book. So starting with saying this is just the author's decision and the translator just follows it. What... I was doing, though, was deciding how to say it. So in Norwegian, um, the first sentence is four words long, really three, because the last two go together. So um, I, and then in Norwegian, there's only one past tense. So drove or was driving is the same word in Norwegian. And so it's not that drove is a more literal translation. They're both literal translations because that's the one word there is. So I drove or was driving and then avgarda, which kind of just means forth, you know, onwards. It means not 
going anywhere specific, not running an errand, not like trying to get to someplace, but sort of just driving. And yeah, so uh, you could translate it as I drove off, you know, just like I started somewhere. Um, but how do you translate that? Because we don't have that adverb that works that way. So um, the first, you know, I tried different things and I ended up with, I was just driving along because I felt that the important thing to get was the sort of purposelessness and not the departure point. So, um, but you could have translated it, I drove off, and that would be a much more sort of visual or sort of screenplay-ish beginning of, you know, I was at a certain point and then I left it. But instead, I thought it was in the process. You know, I found myself driving like Dante finds himself in a dark wood. So then the next two, so I, I, I at first ended up with, I was just driving along. And it was the editor who said, you know, that's not working for me. Like, that seems like it's in the middle of something, like driving along what? And my first reaction was, oh, you're wrong. It's perfect as it is. But then I, you know, got over it and thought about it. And I was like, hmm, well, how else could we do it? And I tried different things in, you know, in my mind and in my word file. And so I changed it from I was just driving along to I was taking a drive. Um, in English, you always want to get as much as you can into the verbs. And um, and this seemed in a way better. It was like even more simple than just driving along. Taking a drive kind of got the just in there already by it being casual and whatever. And so the next two sentences um, are both three-word sentences in Norwegian. And so what they literally mean was, it did good, meaning like, it did me good. But again, you have to decide, like, do I subjectively, psychologically feel good, or is it sort of objectively helpful and beneficial? You know, I felt good about it, and it was beneficial to me are both equally good translations. And then, so it felt good. And then the third sentence is to move did good. It did good, to move did good. And to move is one word, it's the infinitive. So moving did good. So there's that repetition, but repetition is more normal in Norwegian and kind of sticks out in English. So you have to decide like, well, do you, think that this repetition is something that FOSA is calling attention to, or is that just how the language works? Do you, would repetition in English stand out the right amount or would it stand out too much? Where do you want to go on this um, subjective objective thing of like how it feels versus how it is? How simple can you make it since it did good as like the three simplest words you could possibly use. So again, the way I ended up with was, I was taking a drive. It was nice. It felt good to be moving. 
And so there are hundreds of choices in there, you know, um, the variation, whether it was or whether it felt and um, varying the sentence length, because it might sound a little bit too thudding to have like three super short sentences right at the beginning. Um, that's the translator's role. So I'm not deciding to how to start the book in the sense of what's happening, but I'm deciding how to start the book in terms of setting the tone and how it's going to feel to the reader and things like sentence length, using a word like nice that means almost nothing, deciding whether to say it was or it felt, like all those, deciding whether to say was driving or drove, you know, all those decisions are what the translator's doing.